0: Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to the first chapter of Ephesians. You've had the essence of this sermon uh, preached from many angles already this morning uh, as we have sung of the the mighty uh, power of our great God. Uh, The... Reformation was mentioned earlier today, this being Reformation Sunday, and out of the Reformation came uh, the solas, as uh, Mark mentioned earlier, and in those uh, solas, which we are dealing with on our anniversary Sundays, uh, one of those is sola scriptura and that is that uh, it is the authority of God himself that comes through his word, that there isn't an equal authority out there, whether it is man or a church or even a church's interpretation of the word, but the word itself. Now, we are not bibliolaters We don't worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible who has seen fit to communicate to us. And so let's give our attention. We're going to be focusing on verses 20 through 23, but uh, as he did in beginning this book, Paul has some rather long sentences here, so we want to back up and we will pick up with verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, Remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Father, how we thank you for your precious word. Lord, help us never, ever to take this for granted that you have seen fit to uh, speak to your people throughout the ages, and that includes today. And so, Lord, you have a a message for us. That's why we are here in this place today. You've appointed it. This is a part of your plan. And so, Lord, will you give us ears to hear? Will you enable us to have hearts that are illumined to uh, see you, to commune with you, to hear you, and then to respond in obedience, and we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, as we come to the, uh, the close of this uh, first chapter in uh, Ephesians, I don't know about you, but these doctrines... Uh, have been so refreshing and encouraging uh, to me. I, we are hearing lots of reports from our community groups who are discussing these on uh, Sunday night and Sunday afternoon and uh, being, being renewed in terms of uh, the same kind of encouragement that Paul intended for the Christians in Ephesus to receive, we are, we are hearing folks saying, yeah, you know, this has been a, a, a renewal in terms of my understanding and my grasp of, of these. Now, as we get to the end of this chapter, uh, he, he continues on and he focuses upon the position of Christ. Okay, so what's going on now? We, you know, we went clear back to before the foundation of the world. You know, what was going on then from God's perspective? What took place in terms of our salvation? And then he, he emphasizes to them in beginning this letter, look, I, I want to remind you just where Christ is. Now, earlier, we um, in our worship, we read from the, uh, under our confession of faith, the shorter catechism. And especially for some of you who are uh, visiting with us, what in the world? Who, what's a catechism? Who does that? And, uh, and yet, I hope you paid attention to uh, the words that we said there. And, and you notice it's in a question-answer form. Well, as a, a, a church, we hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, a document that we believe is a good summary of what the Scripture teaches. It's not equivalent with Scripture. It's below Scripture. But we think it's a good human summary. In fact, I think it's, it's uh, the best human document in terms of uh, summarizing the, the doctrines and teachings of of scripture? Well, from the Confession of Faith, uh, when it was written, they also wrote uh, two catechisms, a larger and shorter catechism. They call them that because one is larger and one is shorter than the other. <laughs> and originally, the shorter one was actually for children now we have a, a children's catechism and ministers in our denomination memorize the shorter one, okay? So that's how far we've come, all right? But again, the, uh, they, they were in order to catechize, which means to teach uh, the people in the church the doctrines of the Scripture. Now, we chose the ones today today particularly because of uh, the one about Christ's exaltation. When it talks about his humiliation, it's talking about his coming to earth, the incarnation, and everything that took place from the time he left uh, his rightful place in heaven and uh, came to earth, and everything that took place, every bit of that from being conceived... All the way through birth, through being in this world, taking on human flesh, all of those for him, theologically, are called his humiliation. Now, we think of that in a very negative term, but that, that was a, a part of his plan when we talk about somebody being humiliated. But it's his humble obedience is what that is. And that goes all the way through to his Death and being put into the grave. And then Easter happened, right? And then his exaltation once again. Christ's exaltation, let me read it to you again in that context, consists in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending into heaven, in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. These verses explain, speak of his exaltation. Let's take a look at those and and break them down uh, ever so briefly because we're going to spend more time applying them. And and I want you to think, why, why would he tell this to the Ephesians? Remember, they were in a, a minority, they, an oppressed minority, uh, a, a hated minority. Why would he bother to tell them this? What encouragement could this bring? So we, we begin that, uh, that he was raised from the dead, starting with verse 19. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him. From the dead. Now, even though you know, during his time of humiliation, Jesus showed glimpses of his power, didn't he? We see his power through his teaching. We see his power through various miracles. Some uh, in in terms of healing, even raising uh, from the dead. Uh, power over nature, all of those were magnificent. They were amazing. They were things that had not be, been seen and could not be duplicated. And yet, Paul says this when it comes to his power, here's where you got to begin. And that is with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Because you know what, all those other things, they're one thing. But if he had stayed in the grave, they would have been just one thing. But instead, his power is shown in him being raised from the dead. And then look what's next, verse 20 again. He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of at his right hand in the heavenly places, seated at the Father's right hand. Being at the right hand of the Father is, that's being put in the the place of of prominence, um, uh, the place of strength. One of of our sons we named Benjamin. Benjamin, Ben means son, and uh, Benjamin means son of my right hand. Son of my strength. And that's how they looked at that. Sorry, all you lefties. That's just how they described strength in that day. So when it says that he was uh, uh, seated there, what we see is he's in the place of power, in the place of strength. One commentator said he was raised not only from the grave, but from the planet. I love that phrase. Being raised, walked out of the grave, and being raised from the planet. Now think about what it says here in terms of the, the posture of Jesus. What do you do when you have worked hard, or at least what do you want to do after you've worked hard? Well, I'll tell you what i do. I sit down. And so what we see here with Jesus, this is no accident that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's seated because his uh, priestly work of sacrificing is over. When he said, it's finished, he had completed the work of sacrifice. And so, after he walked out of the grave, he made his appearances, his last words, he ascends into heaven, and then he sits. Because it's showing us that the work on the cross was finished. He's not continuing to go into the temple, continuing to do things as if it wasn't enough but rather he is in the posture of being seated. And then look at what verse 21 says. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He's above all other powers. Think for a moment. And I would suspect that if we uh, all tried to put together a list, uh, our our we could come up with a list of, of those we think of as the most powerful people in the world. Maybe a president, prime ministers, maybe some dictators, maybe some without official position but just with a, a great deal of, uh, of money. These are, are people that are In power. Look what it says. He's not above them, he is far above them. Now, think about that. What you have is Christ, the king of the universe, and then the most powerful people in the world, way below him little men and women, that think they have great power. And you know what? They might not acknowledge he is above them, far above them, but that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether they acknowledge it or not. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying, that's the way it is. This is the way the universe is set up. And you, Ephesians, remember, you need, to, you need to know this. And then it talks about him being the head over the church. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the uh, church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all things. In all. This is the first place uh, in Ephesians that we see the word church uh, used. And, and this seems so obvious. Well, of course he's, of course, he's over the church. We see him as over the universe. But remember, for the Ephesians and for us, the reminder that in the church we see the fullness of him who fills it. That's the the role of the church and who Christ is to the church. Now, here's the problem, a problem. Sometimes, I've just told you something, and, and probably the majority of people here would say, yeah, you know, I believe that. But sometimes, it's hard to see his power, isn't it? You know, some of you might have even been thinking, yeah, well, I, I, I get that. I'm glad he's there, but you know, I really could, I'd like to see more of his power uh, than I'm seeing right now. If you're a Christian in North Korea or Iraq or Laos or India, or you name country after country in this world, you might wonder where his power is right now. Just from human eyes, just from human perspective, you may wonder where where is this great power? Have you been to the uh, Huguenot Church down in in Charleston? Uh, They... I've worshipped there, and uh, they call it. They call if you go there, they will call it the Huguenot Church, which I think is probably for French speakers. That's probably the right way to say it, but but everyone else calls it Huguenot. So I'm I'm going to do that too. That's what I learned uh, in in church history. Well, uh, there's one in Charleston. There's not. There's only a, a few in this country at all. Let me tell you how it got there. Um, Why they're there. I read this week of how the Huguenots, uh, and on Reformation Sunday, it's good to remember there was a French Reformation as well, and these were French Reformers, Protestant Reformers. And in the early days of the uh, French Protestant Reformation, it it was what we think of historically as revival. Revival. Absolute revival. Uh, some three thousand churches grew up within one seven-year period. Now, just to give you an idea, in our in our presbytery, we're doing good to plant a, a church every year. <laughs> um, that's that's quite that's a big task. Three thousand in a seven-year period. It was clearly, obviously this was something from god but the french catholic monarchy could not stand to see what was going on was threatened by it in terms of their power and so soon through imprisonments massacres and the law they tried to stop the movement And many suffered, men, women, and children. And it even, uh, thousands tried to flee the country. And that, if you were fleeing the country uh, for religious reasons, that was illegal too. And you could be imprisoned over that or meet death. And so they began to worship in secret they had all kinds of ingenious things like collapsible pulpits, you know, because you have got to have a pulpit if you're going to worship, right? You know, but they had ones that, you know, threw hay bales and various things like that. And uh, it's fascinating to read about. But why? Because of because they were convinced this is what God's people do. They still get together. They still worship together. And and they they pursued that for some of them, right up to their death. If they were caught worshiping in secret, the minister was immediately killed. Now, during the revival, during these 3,000 churches being planted, it was easy to see God's incomparably, incomparable great power being displayed. Easy. Easy yeah, look, all this is happening because of God. And then the persecution comes and it wasn't quite as easy to see it, outwardly speaking at least. Where was his incomparably great power? Now, fast forward. If you travel to Hungary, Hungary or Romania, Ukraine, you will find pastors, some of them are dying out because of when this took place, you will find some pastors, though, who spent uh, time ministering under the two generations of atheistic communist rule. Great persecution took place. And I read this week of a pastor who met with some of those remaining pastors who had now were free to worship, but who had been under that kind of a rule. And he said, he said to them, what kept you going? How could you continue on? They said, we're descendants of the Huguenots. God's incomparably great power never went away. It was shown in different ways, and it continues on. And that's what he is saying about this immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. You see, in the outline, I say, well, so what? <laughs> that's another way of saying, what's the application here? Uh, what difference does all of this make? What does it mean to us that Christ is on the throne? What did it mean to the Ephesians? I'm going to give you uh, five things, and you who are in community groups, you'll probably come up with with many more tonight in terms of what kind of encouragement that can bring. But let me give you some categories. First of all, it's how we know he's sovereign. John Owen uh, said this. He said, We can have no power from Christ unless we live in a persuasion that we have none of our own. Let me read that again. We can have no power from Christ unless we live in a persuasion that we have none of our own. I talk with people every single week that are frustrated because they can't control some situation. Some of them, they can't control themselves. You know what? That's where we need to begin. To recognize that it's not about my power. As soon as we recognize we don't have any power, he's got it all, that's the beginning of experiencing his power, and his sovereignty in our lives. And then secondly, for the Ephesians and for us, there is encouragement to endure. The fact that he is sovereign and that he is uh, powerful and that he is sitting at the right hand of the Father does not take away our problems and trials, but if he's in control and he is sovereign and he is good, it gives us incentive to endure. Again, think about the church in Ephesus. They were in an opposed minority. What would keep them enduring? Well, part of it, I'm convinced, was this reminder that, look, don't don't decide what God is like by looking at your circumstances. This is what God is like. Look at your circumstances through that. Thirdly, it gives us a reason to trust. If God is not all-powerful, we don't have any reason to trust him. If he is all-powerful, then we're foolish if we trust ourselves instead of him. If he's not all-powerful, you don't have a reason to pray. If he is all-powerful, we are foolish if we don't go to him in prayer. And then there is peace. Isaiah 54, 7, For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you, he says. Let me read to you from Psalm 88. I was, uh, in in my one year Bible, I was reading this. Look what he says. Uh, The psalmist says, Psalm 88, 13, Listen to the anguish in this, and, and maybe you can relate to this, but I O Lord, cry to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all the day long. They close in on me together. Now, this psalm, you know, obviously, uh, that's what the psalmist is feeling, and uh, I'm glad that's not all we know about God. But that's what he was going through at that time. Sometimes it may feel like we are deserted. It doesn't mean that we are, but we may feel it. It's my contention that when Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That though he felt forsakenness, he was not forsaken. I don't believe for a moment that the Trinity was ripped apart or that one turned its back on another. But I do believe he felt forsakenness because he had on him all of the sins of all of his people of all time. What else would he feel at that point than forsakenness? But I am further convinced that there was never a moment that the, the father was any more pleased with his son than at that moment when his son felt that greatest forsakenness. And so, if you're feeling like this psalmist, and maybe the Ephesians felt like that at some point, understand He will never leave you or forsake you. That's a promise. And then there's an opportunity to be bold, to stand firm. Every Thursday, I send an email uh, out to our elders and deacons, which is a call to prayer for various things. Um, And this week... I sent an additional one out uh, a day early. I started it this way. I said, I suspect that few of you would think of me as an alarmist. I certainly do not see myself in that way. However, we are seeing assaults on our religious liberties that I've not witnessed during my ministry. Between the situation referred to below in Houston, and I, I had something attached there. And that was the situation where pastors were told they had to send, uh, send in their sermon texts and so on. To the situation in Idaho where there is a threat of jail for a couple who will not perform same-sex marriages, we are seeing recurring situations that concern me, and I believe should concern us. It seems to be isolated and, and sporadic at this point, but we know how quickly that which was once unthinkable can become the norm. Now, I share this with you not to alarm you uh, or to, uh, not to alarm you any more than you may already be alarmed if you knew about those, um, but to remind you that we will and we are called on to make a stand. Our stand must always be based on truth. And our stand must always be in love. Those two things. Not one without the other. But, but holding on to them tenaciously. And it may cost us personally or as a church. To me, as I I worked on this sermon, it made all the difference that the one who is on our side is the one who has immeasurably great power. It gives me peace. It gives me courage for the stand that we must take because of who he is, not because of any strength we have. In our day, we see other religions and political philosophies that are are seeking to impose uh, themselves and spread their view of the world and, and force it with violence and murder. Edward Gibbon in The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire talks about the nature of the power of Christianity. Here's what he said. I'll just read you a a couple of sentences. He said, While that great body, meaning the Roman Empire, was invaded by open violence or undermined by slow decay, a pure and humble religion gently insinuated itself into the minds of men, grew up in silence and obscurity, derived new vigor from opposition, and finally erected the triumphant banner of the cross on the ruins of the capital, meaning Rome. Nor was the influence of Christianity confirmed to that period or to the limits of the Roman Empire. After a revolution of 13 or 14 centuries that religion is still professed and i'd say this after 2000 years it is still professed you get it the great power in christ is forwarded by humble proclamation And it powerfully advances through those who follow him. And we must not, we must quit living below our privileges, but rather in the immeasurable greatness of his power. He was a mighty fortress in the early church. He was a mighty fortress in the Reformation, and he is a mighty fortress in our day. Glory be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, will you take us down from any trust in our own power that we keep grasping after? Knock those pins out from under us. They're so fragile anyway. So that we might begin to experience the immeasurable power of living in Christ. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.